Shalom, and thank you for listening to our podcast. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, the president and dean of Valley Beit Midrash. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning, bringing cutting-edge ideas and innovative and pluralistic Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider making a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and enjoy the program. comes out of an organization called Visions Inc. And Visions Inc. is a consulting agency. It has 37 consultants um, nationally, internationally, some work in South Africa and Cuba. But the core of our work is about relationship And so what's the gift of the way in which I do my work as a Jewish educator, as a racial justice practitioner, is that we take the lens of Torah, study, Jewish values, and we turn them into practical behaviors. So it means that this is not just going to be me speaking at you tonight. I'm going to ask you also to speak to me and to each other. Because if we're talking about racial justice, it has to be about our behavior. And I know what my behavior looks like, but I want you to think about what your behavior looks like. And that's how we get at the point of understanding what it means to be in relationship about making change. Yeah? So to begin... What I want to show you is that we're going to do a Jewish text study tonight. How many of you have done text study before? Okay. So Jewish text study, in the context of the work I do, I really focus in on what we call Chavruta, right? Chavruta has the root of it, Chaver. Chaver means, anybody know? Friend. Because it goes to the core of what I just said to you, which is relationship. In Chavruta, what we do is we exchange, we listen, and we exchange. But what makes a friendship and a relationship is hearing someone else into truth. Yes? And then you take turns being heard into truth. And once you hear those things, if you really heard truth, hopefully you'll change. And you're not just going out business as usual, because you're carrying somebody else's narrative and story. Does that make sense? Okay. So... When we do this Jewish text study, the interesting thing that you may not have done before is we're going to look at Jewish text, we're going to look at the story of Exodus, in the context of two lenses. One, that if we're going to talk about behavioral change, we're talking about four dimensions, personal, interpersonal, systemic, institutional, and cultural. That means if you have ever seen racism or a need for racial justice, it's liable to be happening on one of those four levels. Personal, do we know each other? How do we treat each other, right? One-on-one, do you say good morning to me, maybe? Do you get up when I sit down on a train? Who knows? But that's personal. Interpersonal is when you put people who are of different backgrounds and experiences together, and they're interacting, there's probably an element there that you might be able to describe in regard to racism. But it doesn't stop there. Systemic institutional says that we as people who have behaviors, ways of thinking, create institutions, We create laws. We create parameters in which we operate. And that would be called systemic institutional. There are places where you can find and spot racism in that regard, too. And then there's cultural. And 
Cultural is just the way in which we're taught hierarchies of value of what is good, what is valuable, what is good and what is valuable. Something about that has something to do so if we hold those four things, it's going to be interesting for us to do that as Jews, looking at our very own Torah. So we're going to hold those four things as our lens. And then the next thing we're going to do is another thing, which is everybody has a role if there's an ism at play. And I don't care what the ism is. It could be racism. It could be sexism. It could be homophobia. It could be um, xenophobia. It could be any anti-Semitism. Everybody there, we, I call it X plus Y equals Z, which means that there are behaviors of X's and there are also behaviors of Y's. And between the X and the Y dancing together in a particular way around ism, you're going to get Z, which is a lived experience that we all share. If we talk about isms in that way, what becomes really important is none of us get a pass. Everybody has to do their work. Everyone is involved. Everyone has to focus on what their part what their behavior is. And it's just a powerful way to stay engaged around isms instead of talking at them as if they're these high polluting ideas that have nothing to do with anybody but just make us all real uncomfortable. Yeah? Okay. So those are the two lenses. Now, this is a try-on. I don't know if you've ever done Torah study through an anti-oppression lens, but it's important because it helps us to get at the core of where we learn our values as Jews, which is through the Torah text. It's a thousands of year old text, and it's not just reading it and did you hear the story. What are the behaviors of the leaders in the Torah that help us to walk out of the world, walk out in the world, and carry that Torah in a particular way to help us be better human beings? So the text study selection we're going to look at very quickly tonight is the story of Moses becoming woke. <laughs> Have you heard this phrase, woke? In social justice, when we say woke, it means that one day you didn't know something, and the next day you do know something, and now you're woke, right? You're awake. Why? Because it changes you sometimes when you learn some things that you didn't know. And so in our tradition, Moses actually went through a transformational change very early on in his journey. And we're going to study it in the context of those things I just told you. So let's get the story real clear, right? Let's just tell it real quick. Blaze says it exactly in the Bible. There was a child. The child matured. And his mother brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she called his name Moses and said, because I drew him out of the water, and it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown up, that he went out to his brethren, and he looked at their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian smiting a Hebrew, one of his brethren, and he looked this way, and he looked that way, and when he saw that there was no man... He smote the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. And then he went out a second day, and behold, now there were two Hebrews striving together, fighting with one another. And he said to him that did the wrong, why did you strike your fellow? And he said, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Are you thinking that you're going to kill me as you killed that Egyptian? And Moses got scared and said, surely the thing is known. And when Pharaoh heard this thing, he sought to slay Moses. So Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh, went to dwell in the land of Midian, and then he sat down on a well. And now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. And they came to draw water, and they filled the, the troughs to water their father's flock. And then shepherds came and drove them away, and Moses stood up and helped them water their flock. Now, many of you may have seen Prince of Egypt 
for Heston or many other admissions, suspend that knowledge for later. And let's just try to deal with the text. Because what we're going to do is we're going to take it bit by bit to um, parse it to Pesukim, two verses at a time, and then we're going to see what we can learn. So let's take the first one. First one we're going to do together, and then I'm going to let y'all do some work together. In Chavuta. Let's look at the first thing. When the child, and just read the English, when the child matured, his mother brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She called his name Moses and said, because I drew him out of the water. So there are two things I want you to look at in these two verses. Is there a personal, interpersonal exchange around an oppression? Is there a systemic institutional anything at play in terms of laws or edicts? And is there anything cultural that's happening here as you look at just those two verses? And then are there roles that people find them in? Perpetrator means this is the person who's acting out the oppression. Target the person who's the victim of that oppression, meaning they're receiving that behavior, bystander, somebody standing around watching a behavior happening, or ally, somebody's interrupting a behavior. Okay? That's bringing an oppressive circumstance. So, let's have at it. If I were to look at just these two, first, the beginning of Exodus, the story where Moses enters into the story, what's happening in the very first sentence? Oh, yeah. Is that what you're going to say? Well, from a cultural perspective, okay. Uh, like, I would consider language as a culture. Yes, like So, calling his name Moses, that's cultural, and then you saw the person who did that was the person. Okay. So we're trying to look at this, right, from the situation of when we're in societies and these different behaviors are happening. How do they land on us? What is the impact? So the first thing you would need to notice is that a mother is giving away son. Why would a mother give away their own child? Why would they do that? For survival. which tells us that there is a situation at play of oppression right? that means a mother can't keep their own child safe. A mother can't keep their own child the child has to go out of the home in order to be safe. Very first thing happens but from the beginning, the child is being taken out of her, the mother's house, and being brought to who? Pharaoh's daughter. Now, do you all know anything about the context of why the child has got to leave the house? And you know, you, now you can rely on the movie a little bit. But like, what happened? There we go. Now we go to this other thing here, which is systemic institutional. <laughs> What's not said, but what we may know, if we've seen those movies or read the commentaries, is that there was a royal edict that was made by Pharaoh that all male children are to be thrown into the river and killed. So that is called a systemic law. Wherever you live in Egypt, you are now subject, if you are a Hebrew person, to no longer be able to keep your male children. Your male children now, by law, are to be killed. So how do we react when laws come into our lives that way? What do we do, right? And as Jews, if we didn't, this isn't the last time we had to deal with things like this. Okay? This is just one time which we can learn in terms of dismantling oppression. 
So the personal was that a mother had to figure out how to deal with her own child in the context of a system that told her that her child now is to be killed and is an endangered species, essentially. Hebrew male children are now to be killed. And so she tries to survive the system by going to Pharaoh's daughter. Who does Pharaoh, what relationship does Pharaoh's daughter have to the system? A relationship she has to the system. She's a part of it. She's Pharaoh's daughter. Her daddy made the law. Her daddy made the law that would have killed the baby that she's about to take in. Whoa. Deep. Interesting, right? So her daddy made the law, but she now becomes what? What did the Pharaoh's daughter become? Ally. Her daddy made a law. She resists her daddy's law and goes out and takes a child that her daddy said should have been dead into her home and makes him her son. Revolutionary. Quite revolutionary. But then what happens when she takes him? Does, does he get to keep his name? Does he get to keep his mom? Hmm. She picks a name that has something to do with whose culture? Her culture. And this is something important for us to notice as Jews. We have the name Moses, right? Moshe became a part of our tradition, right? Because it's the name of a leader. But did anybody ever tell you that was a Hebrew name? No. Well, you know, that's an Egyptian name. Because based on the text, she is translating her experience into what she gets to call this boy, who now is hers. Forget the culture we came from. Mine now, Moses is who you get to become. Right? Because I drew you out of the water, therefore your name and existence starts with who? Me. Interesting. <laughs> so, we've got personal, interpersonal, systemic, institutional, and cultural at play in the first, it's just first two lines. Now, tell me about who's playing what roles. Perpetrator, you think perpetrator's here? She's awesome. Okay, tell me about that. Well, she's taking away the identity, she's taking his name, she's taking his mother while she's saving. Oh, so what you're holding is something called the difference between intent and impact. Her intent is to help, and her impact is she is erasing a boy's culture while she's trying to help. Can that happen in the context of oppression? All the time, right? So she is both perpetrator and ally at the same time. What else do you see? Hmm, why to what? I mean, things are happening Oh, that would make him a target. <laughs> right, but he is a victim of right. people acting out things that are happening to him. He's not getting power and he does not have agency. That is true. What are you going to say? I see you thinking. I was going to say, Okay, so sometimes when you're a target, that's what happens. You have no say in the matter. You're just the recipient of other people's decisions. Right? Anything else y'all see there? It doesn't say it here, but um, who brought the child to Pharaoh? says his mother brought him, but there's somebody here who's not named Miriam. And Miriam is actually a very interesting ally and bystander. Because when she first, if you know the story from the commentaries, when she first put the, the um, tar pitch basket into the river, it says there, straight in the text, that she stood by the side of the reeds to watch what would happen next. So she's an ally, and she's doing what her mother said, but she's also a bystander because she knows she can't control the outcome, so she just stands close and watches. Right? And eventually, an opportunity comes, but she is able to go from 
bystander to Alec, but she happens to be there with Farrah Jones. She says, I need somebody to help me with this kid. Okay, so do you get the gist of what we're trying to do to the text now? Yeah, we're learning social justice in the Torah using these tools, which are general social justice tools. This is how we teach people to get into relationship around justice. So what I want to do is, I want you guys to do it again. Um, this time you have the text with you. We're going to do it two at a time. Just find somebody next to you who you want to learn with. And what you should just do is read it so that you get your head, your head situated around English. You don't have to do anything but just read the English. It should be apparent enough to you, just reading what it says. And then see if you can find some of these lenses, okay? Everybody have somebody to learn with? All right, y'all. I hope you got a minute to try that on. The goal is not to have it all figured out. It's just to get some thoughts percolating. So I want to hear what the thoughts were. Um, and I hear some laughter, too, so it sounds like y'all tried something on. Made you laugh a little bit. That's good. All right. Let's look and see what happened. So if we wanted to say something very simple, which is that, and it came to pass, boom, Moses is now grown up. He goes out to his brethren, or his brethren, right? And looks at their burdens, and he sees an Egyptian smiting a Hebrew, one of his brethren. Who are his brethren, right? And he looked this way and that way, and when he saw that there was no man, he smoked the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. First thoughts. Yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> yes. Yes. We don't know the color of Moses' skin. Of course we don't. And it is just possible in this story that Moses was had dark skin and his brethren had dark skin, but the Egyptians did not. It's totally possible. <laughs> and there you go. Lovely. Let's complicate things. It's totally possible. And what I want to highlight for you guys, which is important along the lines of what you said, is that there we, as a Jewish people so far in the Bible, have been going back and forth, up and down, in and out of Egypt for a long time. And part of the thing that we do when we go into Egypt is that you people in the text can't tell the difference between us and the Egyptians. So when you get the story of Joseph, right, and they thought he was a pharaoh, you don't often think about exactly what you just said. How come they couldn't tell the difference between him and the other Egyptians? And what did they look like? We do know what it's look, they look like on the hierarchy of stuff, right? So I don't think they had long earlocks, fur hats, and black coats. I'm just guessing. <laughs> so there's a possibility that they looked dark, right? Jews even looked dark. So it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown up, he went out to his brethren and he looked at their burdens and he saw an Egyptian finding the Hebrew, one of his brethren. This one is very interesting. I'm going to finish up with you and then I'm going to hear what the rest of you said. It, it's ambiguous in the text whether one of his brethren is that is referring to the Egyptians finding the Hebrew or one of his brethren is the Jew that's being hit. Why? Because given where he's at right now, he just came out of the palace. Who does he see to be his brethren? Right? He's a prince of Egypt, so maybe he thinks the people who are doing this fighting are his brethren. Or maybe he thinks the people who are being hit are his brethren. It's an ambiguous moment because I think that's the truth. It's funny. It's but I want to hear what everybody else thought. So we will keep playing with it. That's what protects us for. That's how we get our values. So tell me, what else did you guys hear? What did you all see? Yes. Uh, Systemic. Okay, where? 
Egyptian? What agency did he have that he could walk down and see something wrong and be like, yeah, I'm taking you out? That's power, right? So he's coming from a systems place of power. That is definitely true. He has office, he has agency, and he uses it. What else? Oh, that's so interesting, too. Why is he looking this way in that way? Oh, he has agency, but only so far. Just to find out, right? He has agency as long as he is colluding with the system. When he is not colluding with the system, what happens to his grand privilege? It dissipates, doesn't it? And that's what's about to happen. But we're not there yet, but I hear you. This is what the beauty of the text is. What we're talking about now is privilege, right? It's conditional privilege. Because Pharaoh is his daddy. Why can't he just go home and say, Daddy, I killed an Egyptian. You know, you have 15 more. This is all fine, right? He's, he's Pharaoh's son. Okay, so we're going to see that in a minute about systems. <laughs> but what's interesting here is watch Moses, right? He himself is starting to notice Number one, he has some brothers that don't live in Palestine. Number two, he has agency to be able to use his power. Number three, that it's limited. Number four, once he does it, he's now in relationship with him, pushing against him. Starts pushing against him. He's starting to see things. Those things become very important. So, I want to hear it from you, though. I'm talking too much. What else did you see here? Yeah. So, when I first read it, when I first read this and it becomes problematic because I see that it says, you know, physically mad, and what I hope you'll be the next part, you can see if someone would come to this guy's yeah. age, yeah. Yeah. instead of, you know, taking the around and making sure that they're going to Yes. And in, I, I did this exercise with a group of um, students at UGC, and they taught me something which was really important. They went to the cultural place, because what they said is, how are you in a big old slave pit? Right? Teeming slave pit. He went down into slave pit to see and he looks this way and that way, he sees no man. What man? Right? Where is Moses' head at this point? Yes. No one else who has agency is watching. Right? And so therefore, people who don't have agency are not men. People who don't have agency are not yet counted. Not right now. Because he's looking to the right and the left and he's saying, there's no man here. And he's in a pit full of men. Maybe even women, right? They're not, they're not the ones who he's yet giving value to. So that would go into personal, interpersonal, and cultural, maybe a little systemic institutional around his own thing. And then here's the thing that also was beautiful that somebody else brought up, which is that Moses is culturally acting like an Egyptian. How is he culturally acting like Egyptian? Because when Egyptians don't like something in their culture, what do they do? They get rid of them, right? You said looking for somebody to help. Maybe that's not culturally Egyptian. 
<laughs> Maybe that's not where he's coming from. Because if we look at the history of the way Egyptians behave, when Pharaoh doesn't like something, he gets rid of it. If he's scared of the, the, the Hebrew boys, we kill him, right? We take agency. We are powerful. And so he acts like a powerful Egyptian right now. So far, he's being totally culturally appropriate to where he came from and how he was doing it. Yes. It's also don't know what we know, that their conscience is not working in the same way our conscience is working. Why? Because we have something in ourselves, a Jewish soul, that teaches us, that opens our eyes, that creates our awareness to oppression in certain ways. And what are we going to do about it? What are we going to do? Let's learn from Moses. So this man, he looked this way, now he said, mm, nobody's looking, I'm just going to do my thing. <laughs> As I did. Okay. Now, perpetrator, bystander, target, ally, just real quick, let's throw those out. Who's perpetrator here? Yes. Moses. Moses is a perpetrator. Who else is a perpetrator here? The Egyptian. Oh, you want to follow by? Yeah. Yes, he is. Oh, you're going to get to that one minute. You're ahead of the game. You, like, go two verses ahead every time. But, yes, that's exactly what he's assuming. Right? But... He's both perpetrator, and I think he's also target based on his cultural thing we're talking about. Because he's, you know, he's only doing what he was raised to be. And yet, he's in this really hard position of not knowing what to do. Um, are there any bystanders here? Is there any bystanders? <laughs> All slaves that are there to pit with them are bystanders, right? So there's lots of different people. Anybody here an ally? He's trying, right? He's trying to be an ally. He's living on all four of these things for the most part. We're going to do these next ones together just in the interest of time. So look at what happens next. What's your name, sir? Fred. Fred. So Fred essentially gave us a spoiler. Right? <laughs> he thinks they're all his allies, but then he goes out the second day back to the scene of the crime. When we talk about agency, guys, how many of us feel so powerful that we'll kill somebody and then go back to the scene of the murder and just start walking around, right? He really thought he had allies. So he goes out the second day and behold, now he sees two men, Hebrews, are striving together and he walks up to them that are fighting each other and he says to them, why are you, why are you striking your brothers? Why are you hitting your fellow? And then what do they say to him? They, they go back to him and they say, <laughs> Mr. Prince, Right? You may think you're a ruler, right? And you may think you're a judge, but we saw what you did yesterday. Which means if you thought we are your allies and that we're going to take up for you as opposed to take up for ourselves, when Pharaoh finds that body out there, no, 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 brother. <laughs> Essentially, you're the prince and we're the slaves, right? So they give him a reality check. Really quick, they give him a reality check. And they don't see him. And this is so interesting also that I want you guys to hold. There's personal to personal systemic institutional going there, but also if you look at the way in which when somebody has power and goes to help, 
right? But doesn't check privilege or doesn't check the level of access or power or agency that they're bringing into a system, right? He didn't create the slavery, but those slaves know what it means to operate in that system. So when he walks in there and decides he's going to do what he's going to do, because he decides he's going to do it because he's going to get that Egyptian, they tell him, look, we understand system. And in system, you are not our brother. You may think you are, but you are not our brother. So actually what you did actually is going to target us for the targets. So there's all sorts of perpetrator, target, bystander, ally in this. And then it's interesting what Moses says at that point. He goes, and Moses feared. Whereas he was a man of agency and power two minutes ago, what is he now? Scared. Busted and scared. He's scared. He's a target again. Not just, watch what happens to him. He's not just a target because of what's happening directly with these slaves. Who else is he scared of? Pharaoh. Because not his brothers don't accept him. He just killed an Egyptian. And now when Pharaoh finds out, he has no, he's essentially a man with no home. Yes? What would give the slaves the feeling that they've requested principally? Why are you strike your fellow to It's your brother. Like he thinks they're his brothers. What would give them the power I have a feeling that they knew. That's what I have been. And that they were kind of going along with the program because he was accepted as a prince somehow. But they are also telling him your privilege is conditional. So he's getting his privileges conditional from the system, and he's also getting his privileges conditional from those who are lower than him in the hierarchy of peoples. Because I thought you're right. The only reason why they would speak that way to someone who they thought was a prince of Egypt is because they're like, Yeah, brother, you think we don't need a secret? Right? Who made you over us? Actually, you're a Hebrew, but you think you're going to be a ruler over us, right? So they're they're kind of like hinting, <laughs> hinting at what his vulnerability is, and then he got scared. Yeah. So, so hence it says, surely the thing is wrong. Yes. What is the thing? So yes. that's the question. What is the thing? And then the, more to your point, say what's your name? Steve. More to your point, Steve. The fact that he survived. He was a Hebrew child that survived and went into the house of Pharaoh. I'd be surprised if that was a big secret. Somebody in Hebrew can't believe that happened. It may not have been as big a secret as everybody thinks. Because that probably was uncommon. So he said, Oh, you just knew that, that special case, but you're not so special. Part of the contract True. Okay, so surely the thing is known. You asked, what is the thing? What is the thing that now is known? Yes, the jig is up. <laughs> I tried to beat the system now, and the jig is up. Oh, no. What am I going to do? So what happens? What happens now? System reacts, right? What happened? Pharaoh says, oh, no, you didn't, Moses, right? What? You're pushing back on my system? Yeah? Well, let's go back to what the thing is mm -hmm. and what uh, Pharaoh realized. Uh, Pharaoh may have uh, not been 
people had concern that his prince committed murder, but that his prince yeah. was a first-born Hebrew that he had ordered a slave to give him. Who was willing to disrupt the system to be able to try to save slaves. But even, but even if that had not occurred, mm -hmm. it's, it's possible that Pharaoh, realizing that the son of the Pope's son of his daughter wasn't the son of his daughter, and was uh, someone that he had avoided slave that's like the Possibly, yes. So he's not going back and cleaning up his error. <laughs> that's good. I hadn't heard that one. That was what I'll take in. But there's also this idea of this with 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 Moses, right? You know, I can't count on you to uphold the system is the most important thing that Pharaoh learned. You are not, you're, you're supposed to be my son. You're out there in the slave pits. Not, not only are you out there making sure that they're doing what I told them to do, you're on the plan for the other side. And you're Hebrew, you've got to go. Right? So you've got to go. And so Moses flees from the face of Pharaoh, and he finds himself now in a new situation in which he can now act again. Why? Because the first thing is he sat down by a well. Now, in biblical terms, when somebody's sitting down by a well, it usually means they're waiting to see what their fate is, right? When um, Abraham sent Eliezer to find a wife for his children, the first thing he did he sat by a well. <laughs> right? When Jacob was running away from Esau, he finds himself over by Laban's camp before he gets to Rachel and Leah. He sits by well. Every time somebody's sitting by the well, essentially they're like, What's going to happen to me next? So he's sitting there, and what does he see? What's the next thing that comes over? The priest of Midian has seven daughters, and they're coming, and they're drawing water, and they're filling troughs. What are they for? Any problems yet? No problems, right? So he's in a new place. The new thing is that daughters, the daughters of the priest come, and they get water. Everything's good, Moses, right? So in this case, Moses is in a place of reflection, possibly, He's not being a perpetrator. There's no targets yet. He may be a bystander. We don't know yet. He's just watching what's happening. And I'm not going to parse this one too much because I want to get to this next one. And then what happens? Now we should talk about systems of oppression. What happens? Oppression again, right? Shepherds come. These daughters who are just trying to water their flocks are standing at the well. And all of a sudden some big shepherds come and they kick them away from water. What's the system? Resources, right? Water is resource. If they kick the girls away, this is our well. You cannot have water, right? So Moses has a choice now. How does he respond to the system? Uh, this is the most important thing that I brought this for that I wanted you guys to learn, which is that Moses is transformed as a leader from the Egyptian who was culturally taught that the best way to help is to go in on your own agency, do your thing, don't ask anybody, be the strong person. He's changed because now he doesn't address the shepherds. Who does he address? The daughters. And we know they had agency because they were already getting their own water. <laughs> and they were, they were female. And they were female, yeah. When, when it says that, how and the shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. So what he does is he changes. Instead of being the one to interrupt the system, thinking he can when he can't, instead of going after the shepherds and beating them up and you know killing them, what he does is he goes to address the need. 
goes through the wilderness because he needed water. So he makes sure they go. It's a beautiful thing in the context of social justice. So now I'm going to ask you a more important question. What does all this have to do with where we're at in terms of racial justice today? It's all a metaphor, right? It's a metaphor, but it has value. It's deep values, which is why the Torah is still around. But what does all this have to do with situations that we might find ourselves in in the context of racial justice? That we believe as a people, based on deep alam, based on the way we understand how we're supposed to behave in the world, in Yudus Hasadim, in Yudus right Chesed. It's all about doing the right thing. But doing the right thing is a process, right? It's a process. Just because you want to do the right thing doesn't mean you're doing the right thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Often we want to know who are you, who's my brethren? Who's the brethren, right? Who are we? And who are they? And if we don't think about that relationship between who's who, who's we, and who's they, sometimes we trip our own feet up, and we also create a situation where the press people are like, look, I see you, Prince. Go back where you came from, because you caught the brothels, <laughs> right? Yeah. figure out what is the best way for me to use my agency is a beautiful way for us to think about justice. So some of what we were, I'm going to go down to um, this because we have maybe 20 minutes and this is the part where I get to talk. I had you to, I had you guys start with the text study because I wanted you to engage yourselves. I wanted you to see a text that we listen to, you're going to be listening to in the context of the Seder. You hear the story of Exodus all the time. But we don't always take seriously the transformational journeys of our leaders and what they have to do with contemporary social justice issues that we're engaging in. And Moses is a flawed character. He's going through a transformational journey where he's scared sometimes, where he has to act sometimes, even when he doesn't know what to do, where he's taking risks, where he's going out and behaving one way at one time and another way at another. And I think that's really the only way to engage social justice. You have to be humble enough to be able to be the perpetrator, the target, the victim, or the bystander, and know that it's okay for you to circulate through all of those spaces in order to get to the true justice, in order to get to the place where you're answering the need of the most targeted and the most vulnerable. Okay? The people who are most targeted and who are most vulnerable. In that case, at the end, it was the daughters of Midian. They didn't do anything. They were just trying to water their flock. And he goes to address their needs in the end. So... Why racial justice? I go around the country and I talk about this all the time. And I, I think what's important for us is to understand three things. Number one, be real about the context for racial justice. What does it look like? How does racial justice relate to our Jewish faith and our community and its commitments? It's not our righteous work to help those poor, unfortunate souls. It has something to do with our poor, unfortunate souls. Um, 
what are the tools and resources and best practices we can use, including studying our own text and having it in our mouths as we go out in the world to talk about why racial justice means something to us. So when I say current context, I brought you the stories that have been on our TV screens over the past year that have something to do with racial justice, which is in such a staccato pace that often I think we don't pause long enough to do what we're doing with the text, which is to parse out what are the human behaviors that were involved in this. It's not a story. It's not a picture on the news. These are people. So what happened when you were at Harvard and all the pictures of the black lawyers in the, in the room that were listed in this particular hall were put black tape across them. When that happened in this past year, and you were a person who worked hard, and you're at Harvard, right? And for some reason, someone decides that black faces don't belong there. And so that happens. And it's a new story, it's gone. And what happens when in Missouri, Students have to go on a hunger strike to get attention to the idea that racial justice is something that don't feel is being addressed at their university. What happens when a young boy comes to school with a clock that he spent all night working on? It's a clock. It's just a clock. He made it with wires and wood. He comes in. His teacher accuses him of building a bomb simply because of the way he looks. What happens? What does that have to do with racial justice? What happens when this fraternity in Michigan decides that because it's their long tradition to be able to sing about all sorts of epithets, that they get on a bus and somebody catches them on video singing epithets as a place of pride for their, you know, the N-word, as a place of pride for what it means to be a part of their fraternity. Only white people will ever get into this fraternity. No N-ers will ever get in, right? Contemporary, 2017, Equitable university for all students in 2017, right? What happens with Rwanda Castile, with the police, where you have a right to carry and you end up getting shot dead on video in your own car? What happens with Sandra Bland when you pulled over for a taillight and you never come home? What happened with the Confederate flag? What happened with the houses of worship that were burned in South Carolina? What happened when Ben Affleck discovered that he had roots, slavery, his, his predecessors were slave owners, and he tries to erase it from the PBS special that he had the agency to be able to create. What happened when somebody walked into a church and just decided when people were praying that the hatred in his heart was worthy of slaying a bunch of worshipers? What happened on the campaign trail with Trump and the various things that he said? What happened when Rachel Dolezal, who grew up as a white woman, decided to take her agency and become a black woman? as a leader of the NAACP. Just change your phenotype and never tell anybody. What happened when we decided there were things like White Appreciation Day? Americans decided that on June 11th we're gonna celebrate White Appreciation Day because all Americans should be celebrated. What kind of notion is that, given where we've come from in regard to civil rights? What happened to Freddie Gray in Baltimore that instigated the riots there? What happened when I visited this campus where students thought it was humorous to hang a noose out of the front yard? Just hang a noose, as if that noose does not have significance to people who have had the trauma of understanding what a noose meant in terms of systems, right? In terms of enforced systems of hatred. And what happened when Starbucks thought the best way to do it is to write on a cup. Let's all race together. And then the whole country is now going to be healed from racism. 
because we write it on a cup, right? And you sit down and have coffee, and all of a sudden people I don't know, I'm ready to talk to you about this. Yes. And that didn't work so well. And so we keep going, and there are other things. It's not racist to your to love your people. We have the White Pride Radio right now, and we have we have the Black Lives Matter movement, and we have Steve Bannon, and we have JCCs and cemeteries being desecrated, and we have multiple campus hate crimes. And what I want to say to you is that if you want to talk about the context of racism, I need to be able to say before I leave tonight that it is no longer an elective option for us to talk about racism because it is a poison that is now everywhere and it is infiltrating so many different spaces that we have to decide what does it have to do with us. What does it have to do with us becomes the question. And so what I say is it has everything to do with us. It has to do with what we understand tikkun olam to be and the ways in which Jews engage the world with social justice. How do we take our values and make them real, not just to ourselves as a people, but to the world? That this is what you stand for. If we're global citizens, what is our moral obligation to the global community? To Jews of color. Jews of color are a big issue because many people do not understand that one in four Jews are Jews of color. And so we are a multiracial community. And that doesn't just mean people who are black. That means people who show up with this phenotype. I met a woman in Michigan two weeks ago who is Irani, okay? And she said to me that when ICE officials come through her neighborhood, she's scared too. You know why? Because nobody's going to be able to look at her and tell the difference between her and a new immigrant to this country who they are targeting because they think they're maybe from Latin America or Mexico. You know why? Because phenotypically we look the same. There's nothing wrong with that. God created us that way. As Jews, yeah, we look like the world. If I were to snap my fingers like this and bring every Jew that exists in the world in the room with us right now, we would look more like the United Nations than the United Nations itself. We would. And are we ready to stand up for even our own people in regard to the way in which we're vulnerable right now? Is a question. So what does it mean to recognize our Jewish diversity, Jews of color, the con our context as being global, members of the global community? As we think about this thing, Paul, how do we move racial justice? Jewish history and anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism is one of the oldest forms of racism. Anti-Semitism is one of the oldest forms of racism. Did you all know that? Did you know that? You know why? Because when anti-Semitism was formed all the way back to Rome, it was about the blood. It was about Jewish blood being polluted. It was about the Jewish character being evil. It was about all sorts of things that had to do with our bodies that you were born with and that you cannot change. And when people designate your physical body as having a denigrated status, that is racism. So anti-Semitism is one of the oldest forms of racism. And yet when we talk about anti-Semitism, we don't often hold that piece of truth as the reason why this too shall not pass. You hear so when we talk about anti-Semitism, we have to talk about our memory of being targeted historically and excluded, not just as a minority faith group, as physical human beings who were targeted because of our physicality, which we have been able to step to the side of with access, resources, and privileges, like going into the Pharaoh's house. We have been able to do it here in America, but we can't forget our history. And then the vision for change. Who do you want your grandchildren to be? I'm going to tell you a story. My daughter's at Princeton, and her friend is at Brown. And at Brown, somebody carved a swastika into the door of her white friend who went to Gann High School with her, Yeshiva High School with her. And they had a conversation. 
This happened a couple months ago, around the time of the election. And what happened was, she called up my daughter, Tara, and she said to her, now I know what it must have felt like for you to feel alone when you were in a place where you didn't know who you could count on. And I want you to tell me what, how I should stand up for myself as a Jew in this space. Because you've always had to stand up for yourself as a black person among us as a Jew. That's relationship, okay? I mean, she didn't take my daughter's journey for granted. Even when she knew she was privileged in a way that the treatment that was coming at my daughter wasn't necessarily coming at her. She saw that as relevant to her, so that when she needed that piece of information, she could reach for it. That's what it means to be a Jewish multiracial family. And if we want to talk about a vision for change, how are we going to teach our children not just to know that, but to live that? To walk out into the world boldly and say, this is what Jewish looks like. This is who we are. This is what our history is. And we will not take one step back. Not one step back. We've come too far. So those are the ways in which we can relate this to who we are in Jewish community. But there's also a way when we talk about the text. Text is considered holy, right? Text is holy. Our holiest tradition is the Torah. We marched around the desert with an empty box for 40 years. There's nothing in there but two pieces of stone, which said what? How men, or women, and children, and everybody's supposed to treat each other. We don't worship graven images. We worship behavior. We worship equity in our behavior. Okay? So we did that. And what we want to say is that what we need to do, if we're going to talk about racism, is take a journey. Take a journey from our traditions and from the sacred parts of us being hefker. You ever heard that word hefker? Anybody have a bubby that used to talk about hefkeris? <laughs> Hefka means nobody owns it. It's just there. Nobody owns it. It's a, it's a designated status in the Talmud specifically, Hefka. But what happens is you only change the status of being Hefka, meaning ownerless, property that's ownerless, by somebody coming in and owning it. So if we are going to step in and turn racism from Hefka, everybody owns it, it's nobody's problem, to Hekdesh, make it sacred, we own it. It would mean that we have to look at the development of legal and social standards that promote the inherent value, inherent human value across diversity and creation that we as a people stand for and make sure that there are social constructs in which that which has been profaned can now be transformed as a whole. That is a beautiful vision for what we can do as a Jewish people. We take things from being hefker and we make them hectic. We make them sacred by owning them as part of our people. So... Big questions. These are the big questions. They <laughs> are big questions. You know, we're going to get to ask me questions and we can talk together. But how am I prepared to identify the presence of racism in myself and others? Everybody here prepared? How do I interrupt racist practice and build allies for maintaining anti-racist environments in the family and communities I cherish? If this is Jewish space and it's sacred space, racism has no place here. Has no place here. So what are we going to do about it? How can I organize and empower myself and others to work in partnership with individuals and communities that are most deeply impacted by systematic So those are our questions for right now. In addition to the questions you have on your sheet, I'm going to pause right now. Um, and this is the time that I was told you guys get to ask questions. So now Okay. Yes. So what is the state of activism today? Where, where does the trend line, what does the trend line look like? 
terms of activism with respect to all of the normal ways. There you go. Act. So it's in our behaviors. We don't take it as some truth, right? We say it lives in our behaviors, in the way we interact, our personal, interpersonal, cultural, systemic, institutional levels. That is where racism lives. So if we're going to change it, yeah, we got to stop talking about it as if it's some truth that we're in relationship with. It's a lie. It was a lie from the beginning. But the lie has been permeated across various different aspects of our society. So we have to tell the truth in those spaces too. Right? Um, so that was one question. I think since I got the question, I should probably do it in one of the two. You asked me, what are people doing? So there is a racial justice movement that is afoot right now. It's a very grassroots racial justice movement. It, is, it doesn't have centers. It's people in cities organizing on their own to be able to be responsive. Some of that energy you're seeing in what's being called the Black Lives Matter movement, but it's also coming out of places like the NAACP, it's coming out of black churches, it's coming out of colleges. Mostly what people have been galvanized around is that phrase, Black Lives Matter, because what it's called to attention are the ways historically, over many, many eons, they're noticing black lives have not mattered, so they're asking the question, what do we want to do about it? And how do we want to name that in a very particular way right now? And the way in which that comes about, I think, is going to be deeply influenced by the diversity of folks who take this on as our American problem. What I'm saying to people all across the country about racial justice is that it's a variable. X plus Y equals Z. You watch the butler watch those movies, right? I was sitting in a movie and this woman was going, she's crying, oh, I can't believe it, treated her so bad. I'm but uh, what's the other one? The, the help. I can't, look how much she loved that girl, I can't believe the kid is so bad. And I said, I can't believe that poor white woman couldn't see that love that was coming at her and she felt like she had to treat her that way because of racism. Her poor unfortunate soul. Because you know what? They were in a relationship. And what, what the blinders that come up? This is our American problem. Racism is just as much white people's problem as it is black people's problem because it robs people of their souls. So, if we want to recover our American soul, how do we tell the stories of all the white people who had to interact with racism? All the messages that came at white people as a result of racism. All the things they lost and were robbed of and never got the benefit and gift of having in their lives because of white supremacy. And can we tell that story alongside the ways in which people of color also need to be empowered and understand the ways in which they were robbed and the things that they didn't get and the ways in which they have to stand? Can we tell those stories together so we can be one American people who are holding this evil, this poison called racism together? That's the racial justice movement that I think is real. If we can do that and not just spend all our time naming and telling how victimized we are, we did. It's clearly not black and white. Black. No issue of it. Muslim community. Muslim community mm -hmm. is, is clearly a part of this although at arm's length from historically from the president. Yes, but what I'm saying, you asked me what the movement is about. The movement is about stepping in and taking up space. And not taking up space by telling only your own story. Saying my story is connected to your story, is connected to your story, is connected to your story, and is connected to your story. So since we're all in this together, what are we all going to do about it? And how do I get to take care of myself since I've been historically targeted by this thing so that I don't die while I'm waiting? That's what it's about. <coughs> so now, questions. One, two, yeah, so we can take these two. It's really not a question. I just follow up. Okay. Um, so 
okay, well, let's do follow-up. After we get questions, then you can do it. <laughs> yes. Around the early days of the Yes. Okay, that's a good question. Is there another, is your follow-up related to that? No, you just want to deal with him, okay, let me answer you. So, Heschel, how long ago was Heschel? Yeah, about 80 years, right? Okay, in eight, what's happened since Heschel? What's happened since Heschel? Who's, who's since Heschel? Who, when we say people who have been champions within our community and leaders who have been walked arm in arm like you did with King, who followed Heschel? Okay, so just hold that for a second. Sure, there are plenty of people on an individual basis that follow Heschel, right, in their hearts and their minds. The key is that that relationship has been heralded and overused in the context of our spaces to name our current organizational relationship to racial justice. When you can't take an 80-year-old paradigm and skip what happened between Heschel and now in terms of real-time grievances that continue to occur. And what's happened is many people, especially in the context now of the racial justice movement, are asking questions like, where are the Jews? Where have the Jews been? We don't see you in our communities anymore. We don't see people at the conferences that we're at. We don't see people standing up doing those things. The Jews support with money, yes? Sometimes we stand together in policy, but in terms of relationship to the point of actually being with one another, marching with each other to the streets, it's become an old story. So what we have to do is figure out what's at stake for us. Because I think in the time of Heschel, what was at stake for us is there were still many laws on the books that still prevented us from having full access in society. So when we as Jews were marching in the civil rights movement, we were also taking benefit from the civil rights movement. It wasn't just for them. The GI Bill, the, 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 the tokens, right? The, 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 um, the tokenism that was in universities, the Jewish hospitals we had to build because we couldn't, we couldn't work as doctors in regular hospitals. There's, our history is that we were directly targeted by anti-Semitism in this country. And civil rights helped us in many ways to be able to step into that breach and have a different level of access. The question is, in regard to communities of color who are watching that and also watching the continuing struggle that they're engaged in, what happened to the relationship? It's a question on us and on them, right? We often ask that question in Jewish spaces, thinking that, well, they, you know, where, where are they, right? How come they don't love us anymore? If they come back and you say, well, where you been? <laughs> come on back, where you been, right? What are we going to say? Oh, yeah. Yeah, and that's the other thing we missed in the movement for Black Lives Platform, where they wrote, you know, that language about apartheid and genocide against Israel, which created a huge practice in our community. One of the first things that the movement for Black Lives Platform writer said was like, look, we wrote that platform, seven different pages as uh, seven different web pages, as an act of love, 60 different black Jewish organizations, 60 different black organizations came together. And what did they want to talk about? They want to talk about what would it look like, 30, 40 year olds, what would it look like for us to see the end of white supremacy in our life, locally and nationally, what would it look like? And they just started writing and naming the things that they wanted, right? And then 
under global militarization, which was this idea of how guns get proliferated around the world, where those guns end up, and who they end up killing. They talked about how much money goes to Israel in regard to guns, and they also talked about the relationship to the Palestinians. Why? Because there were people who were in the Palestinian um, community who had aligned themselves with the racial justice struggle and were there. So they took what they said and it went in. And what I say is, yes, we have to say in the context of these things that when you do behavior that is hurtful and we both stand for justice, each side of the variable has to be accountable. And the best way to say that is a relationship. So if you weren't at the table, the first thing you have to do is get to the table. You gotta get to the table. You gotta be sitting at the table. You can't be writing letters to the newspaper, you know, hanging out in your own spaces, talking about what funding you're gonna cut. If you're not in relationship, you gotta be in relationship. I gave the example, you know, my auntie comes over to my house, right? She says something about my mother. She says, your mother, she's always been horrible. She used to pick on me from the time of And she starts going on and on about my mother. And you know what I say? I don't say, auntie, I'm about to take a letter out into the New York Times to tell you to please stop talking about my mother. I don't do that. It wouldn't make any sense. I don't say, auntie, when you get home, you're gonna find out that I called your landlord and you're no longer gonna have any rent to pay because he's kicking you out because you talked about my mother, auntie, right? We don't do that. What we do is I sit auntie down and I go, you know you're talking about my mother, right? That's my mother, my mother. Don't talk about my mother that way. And because she loves me or is in relationship with me, she'll go, oh, I didn't mean it. Maybe there's another way to get at this thing that's bothering don't have to say it that way. I can go about it a different way. But what's required is the relationship. The relationship is so required. So why are we not together? Because we have to be together. That's the answer. We have to be together in order to be together. <laughs> All right. Thank you. This is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you've just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetemidrash.org and donating to Valley Beit Midrash to support the expansion of meaningful Jewish education. Thank you so much for listening.